I think it is absolutely astonishing to see Martyr Square filled yeah. with people from East Beirut and West Beirut and the North and the South all together yeah. and all waving the Lebanese flag and with not a party flag in sight. To me, this is thrilling. George Azar. I'm a documentary filmmaker and photojournalist, and I'm currently the photojournalist in residence at the American University of Beirut. And I've never seen anything like this in my life. I never expected to see anything like this in my life. And what's really different about it is to see essentially the entire country out in the, in the streets mm. and united and calling for the same thing. Is it the geography that makes Martyr Square more... Um, more of an occasion today that all types of Lebanese are gathering in Martyr Square as opposed to just Hamra and Ashrafi? Well, first let me say 2005 was also special. Yeah. That was extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And again, it was the same kind of just um, spontaneous outpouring of emotion mm -hmm. and of nationalism and patriotism. And I say nationalism in the best sense of the word, not yeah. in the narrow sense of the word. So this moment, like that one, is absolutely extraordinary. But the difference being, that was people united in grief and sorrow. Mm -hmm. Whereas this is the nation united in the hope for change. What yeah. I'm hoping is that it, it's a revolution not only politically, mm -hmm. but in people's way of thinking. The way we go about our lives, the way mm -hmm. we interact with our institutions, but also the way we interact with each other. You know, I think this mm -hmm. really you know, hopefully will raise consciousness or begin to raise consciousness so there's, that... There's a social component here. Exactly. Uh -huh. I mean, you know, the people in my building can't agree on fixing the elevator, for God's sakes. Uh -huh. So, I mean... <laughs> and now they can as a result. <laughs> well, there are lessons to be learned. There are lessons right. to be learned. So, so, in other words, the, the, maybe the foundation of the country is shaking for the first time since, in a way, since independence. My memory is limited to the late Civil War years and the post-war years. And everything before that, to me, is just photos. They're photos in books. They're family photos. I imagine what Lebanon looked like again, not too long ago, 40, 50, 60 years ago. And I want your perspective here, because as a, as a photographer, as somebody who's made a career off of, and I, I, want, I hope I'm saying this right, collective memory, sort of a way for all of us to reflect together on one image. I've seen images of human chains from the 1940s. I've seen political protests, pictures of students at AUB where we're talking. Is it that we're, in a way, creating memories in the present as opposed to reflecting on memories from the past? Is there something there? Well, I think, I think the wall-to-wall -wall coverage and the instantaneous, uh, the ability to instantaneously access news from around the country mm. and events from around the country has has helped shape events and they certainly have been helpful in mobilizing people mm. to get out into the streets and to know where to go and to be aware you know when things happen uh, yeah. wherever wherever they are as opposed to the old days where you might have to wait until the following day to read about it in the newspaper right if they happen to cover it or not and so I think yes in, in this in this instantaneous way um, 
all these cell phones that we see, these smartphones recording everything, yeah. and you know, satellite uplinks with uh, with television have have affected the protest and and the shape of the protest. I mean, that said, in years to come, when you know our children are thinking back on the protest, it's going to be these photographs and these right. video clips yeah. that they reference, and that will shape the way that they remember it. You know, I, I like that you say that. And before we started recording today, that was a nice sort of back and forth we had over the phone. That what are the signs or what are the symbols of the moment that we're living through? And I believe you you said the kick, the sort of the kickbox, mm-hmm. the woman hitting the security guard. And yeah, that sticks in your mind. Yeah, in every yeah. in every historic moment, not in every, but in many historic moments, in many. Um, you know, sort of global or national events, there comes to be a handful of photographs that Mm. somehow crystallize the moment and clarify the issue where everything comes into sharp focus. And, um, you know, when you think about the Vietnam War, you might remember, you know, execution in Saigon, or you might remember the napalm girl. I mean, there were hundreds of thousands of photographs taken and hundreds of thousands of hours of footage. Mm. But... Those are two of the images that crystallized the issue. Yes. Um, the death of Alan Kurdi, the little boy that washed, washed up on the beach. Right. When right. that happened, 200,000 Syrians had been killed up until that time. Right. Thousands, if not tens of thousands of photographs had come out of Syria. But for some reason, that one photograph yeah. touched a nerve, and it crystallized the tragedy of the Syrian refugee. Right. And it actually led to real change. It led to really quite directly to Germany making the decision to open their borders to Syrian refugees. So, Likewise, in yeah. this revolution, yeah. in this Thawar of ours, there have been you know, one or two images out of all the tens of thousands, if not a million photographs that have been taken that capture the spirit of the day. And mm-hmm. I, think, I think the young woman kicking the, uh, the security guard with a machine gun is, is that photograph. You know, I, I got into this conversation with a friend and I said I suggested that that was more important than the WhatsApp text. That the WhatsApp text sent a few thousand people on the street, but that kick, whether she intended to or not, I think that kick empowered more people to join in. And do you think the power of photography, it's immune to the Instagram bundles of photos that we all see on a daily basis that it's still that that moment maybe exposes the need for photography to kind of help us sort of reorient ourselves in, in a time of change. And I ask this because I I'm now thinking of that kick and I know it in my in my mind. It's a photo. And I didn't see it. Now I I mean I wish I saw it, but but you know what? If I saw it, it may not have been as <laughs> as impressive. It's that photo is capturing the moment. And do you think the power of photography is in a way it, it survives despite the this mass sort of way of just sharing endless photos on social media? Well, I, I don't think it stands apart from social media. I mean, I think mm. it's an integral part of social media. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the means of distribution. Mm. And I think social media as a means of distribution is many times, you know, sort of more powerful and immediate and effective than, say, old-time newspapers and magazines. Mm. So what we face now is a, a flood of images. There's almost too many images. Right. There's... Yeah, that said, while there's a lot, of, a lot more photography happening, it's still very few and far between that there's a photograph that captures the imagination. And right. more than that, 
captures the imagination and is able, as I said before, to crystallize the moment. I think it was a New Yorker piece where there's a, it's a reinterpretation of World War One, and two soldiers are stuck in the trench together. Of course, it's not World War One; it's today, and one soldier says, would you like to see a photo of my grandfather? Flip through a hundred thousand of them. <laughs> and it's not that wallet photo, it's that phone photo. The phone and social media hasn't cheapened photography. There's no threat to photography, if I understood you right. Yeah, I don't think so. I, I, any more than, say, the invention of the typewriter was a threat to writing. Mm, right, right. You know, many more people were able, you know, to yeah. you know, to type things and to self-publish and that sort of thing than before. Yeah. Or, you know, going back even further to the, to the day when, you know, very few people could read and write. The fact that more people are able to do it doesn't necessarily right. uh, diminish its power. And I'm, I'm curious about your own personal story and somebody of Lebanese origin and somebody who now lives in Lebanon. Did photos play a role in your dance with Lebanese identity from abroad? Totally, totally, totally. I grew up in the 1960s in Philadelphia, and at that time, I never saw like photos of Lebanon except in family albums, and those mm-hmm. were always photographs of people. It was quite perplexing to me. What does Lebanon look like? What do the people there look like? What is, you know, I, and I used to go to the church on the corner where there were icons, and I would stare at these icons, and not because I, I cared about, you know, the, the religious significance or the saints. I was like looking to see, oh, are there trees in the background? What do they look like? Are there hills? Is there like, you know, what, running water? We used to get magazines. In those days, it was the golden age of the, um, the photo magazine. So we used to get Life magazine and Look magazine. And they would cover places all around the world, but yeah. rarely, rarely the Middle East, and certainly not Lebanon. We never saw Lebanon. And when photographs did start appearing from here, it was this world completely apart than the world my family had told me about. It was people being dragged through the street behind BMWs yeah. and the war of the hotels and the Holiday Inn. And Had you been to Lebanon before the war broke out? Yeah, I came as a child in 67 and okay. again in 73. Right. So actually, I remember walking down in Martyr Square with my dad and walking mm-hmm. around and, you know, it being a very, at that time, it was a very shabby kind yes. of popular place. Yes. And uh, I remember coming to AUB and, you know, walking on Bliss Street and then <laughs> coming from the village. It was a very big deal to go to Uncle Sam's and to have an American <laughs> hamburger. That was like, you know, a big treat. So I, I, I did have some memories of, of pre-war Lebanon. It was that lack of uh, sympathetic coverage of the war or humanistic coverage mm. of the war that mm. really brought me here and you know, was sort of the motivation for my career in photojournalism. Because I said, the, you know... The human element of the, the of lack the conflict. of... Of oh, the Yeah, okay. yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, I always felt, you know, like... If an Israeli fell and scratched their knee, you would have a full-page story about it. Yet, you know, an entire Lebanese village could be obliterated Mm. and, you know, it would get, you know, barely a mention in the paper and certainly not a photograph. And certainly, you know, nothing that conveyed the human suffering that was, you know, going on from our point of view, from, from our side. And being very naive when I was in college, I thought to myself... Well, that must be because there's no photographers there. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually quite nice. It's like an sort of, yeah. I should be the photographer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I worked in a grocery store after I graduated from university and saved up my money. And I, I bought a really cheap ticket to uh, Europe and hitchhiked with my friend across uh, Europe 
to Istanbul and then down through Syria. And we arrived in Beirut on Thanksgiving Day in oh. 1981. So you came right before the Israeli invasion. Yeah. Did you, in a way, were you able to orient yourself any longer in this city that you, in a way, barely knew in real, you knew it through photos, but did it still feel like a place that you were familiar with? Uh, no. No. Yes and no. I mean, I was able to relate to the people, you know, and I right. felt comfortable here and I felt at home here. But, you know, in those days, you had to carry around a flashlight with you because yeah. there, it was dark at night and there were no street lights and there were, you know, sort of gangs of guys on the street with machine guns and there was no law and there was, you know, anybody could stick a gun in your ribs and, you right. know, basically have their way. So in that way, it was very alien. However... The thing that saved me was that although my Arabic was bad and I hadn't grown up here, I understood the Lebanese sensibility. Mm. And I think that's what allowed me to navigate that's from place to place to place. I knew when to, how to address people. I knew when to be deferential. Mm. I, you know, the Lebanese have a very particular kind of politesse. Mm-hmm. And um, actually, I think the fact that my Arabic was broken and antiquated helped me. Oh, there was a bit of a charm almost. Yeah, it yeah. was charming. Like, this guy is too naive and stupid to bother with. So I would say things like, Let him take you know, clothes. can you take me to the driving machine? <laughs> you know? oh. <laughs> May funny. I use the water closet? <laughs> you could use it. <laughs> but you were here to, to work. It, yeah. wasn't, it wasn't coming home, quote-unquote. It was to pursue photography in Lebanon. Yeah, but it was specifically because I felt Lebanon was home, and I felt I like I had a stake here. I right. wasn't interested in going to Nicaragua, for example, yeah. or El Salvador. Yeah. I wanted to come here, and yeah. I wanted to document what was happening here. I remember being in college, and um, I went to a bookstore. I went to, to Cal Berkeley, and I was on Telegraph Avenue, and I was uh, looking through a book called Nicaragua by Susan Mizellis, which was a photojournalist embedding with the Nicaraguan guerrillas for one year before they overthrew the Sandinista regime. And I, <laughs> I didn't have enough money to buy the book, so I stood in the bookstore and I read the whole thing oh, cover yeah. to cover. And I remember like walking away and thinking, you know, I've read a lot about, about Nicaragua, but I haven't really understood it in a visceral way since I read this book. Mm-hmm. And why isn't there a book like this about Lebanon? Oh, so, re- so it was really on your mind that that's, you're going to know pursue that you yeah. to collect Lebanon's human tragedy through photos yeah you know I like that you knew what you wanted to do before arriving I think I've I more often hear people find themselves once they return but you knew what you wanted to do yeah I had a real sense of mission in yeah that sense although <laughs> I was completely unprepared and naive about about the whole thing but it, it's better with that way but that's uh, in a way maybe that's what allows you to do that kind of journey to begin with yeah you're trekking across a huge part of the world to get make it home did you stay during the Israeli invasion did you remain yeah. in Beirut in fact I was captured by the Israelis in Gia and uh, and yeah held prisoner for a while and then taken to uh, to Israel as a prisoner Wow. So during the invasion, you yeah. they took you, yeah. and they took you as a... As a well, I was on assignment for Newsweek. I was covering the assault on the south, and uh, the guys that I was with who were from uh, Demokratia, 
Palestinian group, mm -hmm. they were overrun, and right. uh, our positions were overrun, and they took me captive. Wow. And how long were you there? Uh, down uh, down south, I must have spent like oof, ten days, two weeks down there before they let me go. That didn't derail your passion for photography. At that moment, you weren't saying, "I'm going to go back to Philadelphia. This is not for me." There was well, no there was a time when I was huddled in a ditch and like shells were crashing around me, and everybody had fled the village, and I was thinking, you know, "Help, Mr. Wizard! If I ever get out of here, you know, I'll never do this again." <laughs> But. No, after 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 it was all over. Actually, after they let me go, I uh, I took a ferry to Cyprus, and then from mm. Cyprus went to Junier, and then crossed back into West Beirut. Wow. wow, these are the war years, of course. Yeah. So they let you go in the south, and you had to go via Cyprus back to. Yeah, because by the time they let me go, yeah. uh, all of South Lebanon was occupied. Right, right. These images of the Israeli invasion, and I, I feel a bit naive now saying this because, I mean, you not only witnessed it, you were taken as, as a hostage. They're all photos. I know there's a lot of film, there's a lot of video clips, but all my working knowledge of the Israeli invasion are photos. And it's photos of Sharon. Hmm. It's photos of bombing Beirut. and I. I think there's a time cover of Beirut being bombed by the Israelis. So it's the images that stick, that stick these clouds of smoke, hor horrifying images of Sabra and Shatila. And these are, I mean, it, I think it's worth noting, photographers are the reason I know the Israeli invasion. It's not because of, it's not oral history, this is images. I made a film a few years back um, on the anniversary of the 82 invasion where I came back to Lebanon with a stack of photos that I had taken during the war, mm. and I, um, I realized I didn't know any of the people in the photographs or any of their stories. And right. so the film is a search for the people in the photographs, and so I find some of them and actually have them explain what was happening in the photo. I have them write the caption. Before and after kind of, uh, wow. Yeah. I can also find photos of a fighter playing the piano mm. during the middle mm. of the war. Mm. And I think my interest in Beirut history stems from photos like that, seeing the stark contrast, the, this before and after, and oftentimes it's just a few months. And Yeah, it's funny, like you yeah. say the picture of the, the, the gunman playing the piano, I know exactly what you're talking about, right? right? But, you just need to say it, and yeah. with, with iconic photographs like that, it just somehow sears itself into your, into your consciousness. I want to ask you, why is that? Why videos don't have that kind of... Uh, effect, even though they're more telling. Yeah. Why does the photo burn in our memory better than a film or like a few seconds? Yeah, it's, it, it, it's surprising because it lacks sound. Right. It lacks continuity. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know the famous execution in Saigon picture yes. with the man holding yes. the gun to his head. There was an NBC cameraman standing next <laughs> to the photographer, and he filmed it. And I remember seeing it on TV, but nobody remembers that. And you would think that would have outweighed any photo, but no, it's yeah. the photo. It was the photo that people remember. But, I mean, is that something to do with how we relate to images as opposed to events? I mean, what is it about images that kind of makes it more personal? I, mean, I, I think it's, I mean, I, I think there must be a neurological explanation for mm. it. Mm. I think that's a terrific, you know, 
subject for a PhD dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> Which subject would that be in? Photography, maybe. Yeah, maybe. and also uh, also black and white images. Yeah, tend to uh, that tend piano. To that, that's a black and white photo. Yeah, and of course, I mean, like I now it's funny. I think of the Holiday Inn as a black and white hotel. Hmm. This tour that I give of Beirut's history, I depend. I, I don't think I could do it without photos. Hmm. And I want to kind of go back to Martyrs Square. And I like that you, you know it from 1973, and you said Shabi, which is absolutely true. 19, early 1970s, every photo I've seen of Martyrs Square, it looks like a part of Beirut that's falling apart. Civil War, part of Beirut that's decimated. Post-war, a part of Beirut that doesn't exist. And you can almost imagine these three images side by side, these three photos. And then there's the photos of the old days, the 1930s, the 1940s, the old Petit Sarai, the old fountain, the old British of Beirut. And I love Martyr Square, I think, because of those photos. Not for any other reason. I think the photos are magical. Is there any, is there any obligation on the photographer to make that photo resonate? Or is that just simply we are interpreting the photo that way and we have our own reasons to either love that photo or not? Are you thinking about your audience when you take these photos at all, or is it really we're receiving them our own way later? Well, no, I'm thinking about the audience, of course, and especially as a photojournalist. You know, mm. what we do is we use the camera as a tool of journalism, mm. and mm. journalism is about conveying information. Right. Um, yeah, so I think about that consciously. What always surprises me, though, is um, what the viewer te- sees in the image because it's often quite different than what I had in mind, and especially as time goes by. And I've recently placed my my archive, my career archive, in the um, Jaffa Library here at AUB, and part of the reason is that when I've shown the photographs to to colleagues, to other Mm -hmm. scholars, they look at them and... They often don't see, for example, yes. you know, yeah. the men carrying the guns in the foreground, but they'll look behind it and they'll see a building that's been torn down. Absolutely. And that's its value. Yeah. You know, or the kind of clothes they're wearing, or the shoes, or the poster on the wall yes. that I wasn't even thinking about. Right. And so... But you're not thinking about those things necessarily. You're thinking about maybe the subject. I'm thinking about the subject, right. usually. And, right. you know, I mean, oftentimes that, that is with others hopefully <laughs> also <laughs> their attention is drawn to that but yeah as often as not it's it's something else altogether and and pictures that i considered outtakes at the time mm. uh because compositionally they weren't strong or the lighting wasn't you know perfect or this and that uh they become valuable with age right. from time to time because yeah. of the 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 accidental things that they contain so it's really the way history is moving that's irrelevant to what you're doing at that time it's that history allows that photo to maybe take on a different role. Yeah, there's, there's, and there's no way to tell. Right. I, and now when I look at those holiday and photos, what I don't, I don't see the soldiers. I see the graffiti on the wall or the engravings. And I look for what I really want to know what's written on the wall. And it could be a fantastic photo of a soldier aiming and trying to shoot, but I'm ignoring the point of the photo I'm looking at the wall yeah that's and it's likely it's not not it's like the pack of cigarettes that's on the table that you know yeah that people will find interesting right but I think the psychological component to this sort of at least the way Lebanon has been interacting with its history I think there's some something there between psychology and photography and I think it's not just the diaspora those photos abroad mm. but it's here too a lot of us hold on to these photos oh absolutely 
maybe there's no other way to kind of imagine what everyone's been complaining about, the loss of what those photos tell us, that we lived in a different place. I think, you know, the Lebanese, along with the Palestinian people, mm. have a tremendous regard and nostalgia for the past mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. of what has been lost. Yeah. And we, we have that in common. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Palestinians are absolutely fascinated by photographs of the country as it was before the Nakba. And their example. loss is even more... Their loss is even more profound. Yeah. But likewise, the Lebanese have an unusual degree of sentimentality when it comes to, uh, to images of the past. Photography is unique as a medium, as an artistic medium, because unlike painting and unlike sculpture, um, it's an art form that is uh, informed by technology. And the technology of the day shapes the kind of photography that we see. Right. So that photographs from the 1860s look the way they looked because you had a huge camera that sat on a tripod and you had to stand still for a few minutes to make right. an exposure. Right. Then in the 1930s, when the Leica camera was invented and roll film, photographs change because you were able to get up close, you could take photos of action, you could take photos at night and that yeah. sort of thing. And likewise, with the smartphone, photography has changed. And so, you know, in years to come, you'll be able to instantly recognize a photograph from our period because most of them are taken with a smartphone, which has a a wide-angle lens, Mm -hmm, which doesn't mm -hmm. have a telephoto, Mm. which has, you know, a certain limited resolution, um, but is always with you. It's a sophisticated photo, right? And by default, it's just the... You have less control over the image. Yeah. You have much less control over the image. And so... You know, artistically, you aren't able, say, for example, to make things blur or to freeze action or to right. zoom in the right. way you can with a proper camera. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it has the great advantage of always being with you. That's true. Journalists, I think, are experiencing something similar, that anyone can have an Instagram account now and claim to be both a photographer and a journalist. They take mm-hmm. a photo of the moment and write a caption, and mm-hmm. suddenly they're citizen photographers and citizen yeah. journalists. But there's no threat to the... Not, not the profession, but not allowing us to really immerse ourselves the way we used to. Because I know what you're talking about. These 1860s photos, you look at them and you appreciate them. And you spend many hours looking at them again and again and again. I don't remember the last time I looked at a photo on my phone. And there's thousands of them. Yeah, and, and when was the last there. time you printed one and put it on the wall? Honestly, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Forget cheapening. We're not diminishing the value of a photo through the smartphone? Is this junk food, in other words? No, it's simply, I mean, it's a tool that is, you know, only as good as, you know, the person that's holding it. And the thing is, with technology and with a smartphone, a monkey can point a camera in the right direction and make a well-exposed, sharp photograph. But photography, when you get... And anybody and everyone has taken one or two good or even great photographs. The difference is a photographer is someone who can be sent out and reliably come back with not just one but a variety of Mm -hmm. interesting images. And a photographer, hopefully, is somebody with something to say. Right. You know, so So many people... Storyteller in a way? Yeah, exactly. Many people can type. Mm. Um, Yeah. Less people can write a short story, and even less people can write a great short story. Right. And right. the fact that there's, you know, everybody has access to a keyboard doesn't make, you know, writers any less valuable. 
Right. So the tools don't diminish the craft, in other words. Yeah. That's good to know because I don't want to live in a world where <laughs> it's only just in, in endless Instagram photos or stories where you're just literally clicking, clicking, clicking without even looking at what the image is. Yeah. 1981, I think it would, would have been clear then that Lebanon was not going to get out of its quagmire. Today, we're not at war. On, on the contrary, it's almost like a festival atmosphere. Martyrs Square is euphoric. Do you sense, given that you've seen the worst times of Lebanese history yourself, and you documented some of them, that this moment can turn to the worse, that Lebanon can be, unfortunately, once again, ushered into an era of violence? Or do you think we moved on, that we saw how bad this place can get, and we're not going to go back? Well, that's what scares me, because anyone that knew Lebanon pre-1975 would have said it is the most idyllic, peaceful place in the world with mm. the loveliest people, the most nonviolent people. They don't even have an army. The speed at which the veneer of civilization was ripped away yeah. was truly frightening. And that's what actually was really frightening to me about being in Lebanon. It wasn't like you were in, you know, uh, some far-flung jungle in the third world. The people that were firing the guns were often well-educated, urbane people, and uh, who all absolutely felt like they were doing the right thing, that they were defending themselves. Mm -hmm. And that was really interesting to me at that time, because... They were justifying the violence. Yeah, yeah. coming from the outside, I could easily travel from the east side to the west side and embed with the militiamen on both sides. Yeah. And everyone always said the same thing, we're just defending ourselves. Right. Right. Uh, and they really believe that. Anyway, that said, the thing that does give me hope is that we have a generation of people in Lebanon that know how easily violence can become uncontrollable and how, mm-hmm. how ugly things can really get. And I think all in all, um, the Lebanese people and the Lebanese parties and the leaderships of these parties have been very restrained in terms of the use of force. Mm-hmm. And for example, when there was a wave of car bombings here uh, a few years ago, it would have been very easy for one side to retaliate to sure. the, with the other side. And I yeah. think the restraint that they showed was astonishing. And I'm quite proud of the Lebanese people that we haven't resorted to violence. And even when there has been violence, there hasn't been retaliatory violence. And to be honest, the attacks that have happened you know what, in the scheme of things, they're nothing compared to what happens in Egypt and oh, that sure. sort of places. Oh, sure, even Iraq and Iran. The last yeah, few I mean, the yeah. worst, you know, attacks at the ring and that sort of thing yeah. were really, you know, it nothing. It's quite shocking. Only one protester has died in 50-some days of, of protesting. Yeah. yeah. That's the extraordinary thing. The sad part is that the rest of the world doesn't seem to take us seriously because it's not violent. But is that maybe a good thing that this is a local Lebanese affair? Well, you know, if that's the price that we pay, that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) That's fine. To me, you know, I couldn't be more proud of the country collectively. But you're you're expressing caution, and I like that it's, I think, due to just you've seen it yourself. You know what the country looks like at war. I'm a little younger than you. And And I know how easily, how easy it is to destroy that calm. So, yeah. for example, yeah. during the Civil War, 
They would have painstakingly negotiated ceasefires that would run from one end of the Green Line to the other, and it would hold for a day or two, and then some hothead would get on a rooftop and st- spray the other side with machine gun fire, yeah. and it would break out all over again. Yeah. And it would happen time again and time again and time again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, thankfully, I think we have a generation of people that remember those days and are, are cautious. But, and this is your opinion here. The, do you think the onus is on the older generation that, that knows what it was like? Or the younger generation that has no memory of that, but the younger than me, the post-war generation that doesn't even remember necessarily the 2005 protests. Hmm. That they're really just waking up now to, to what Lebanon is and politics and all that. Do you think that a clean slate may also be a positive factor in it, driving this moment forward? Well, in some ways it's a positive factor because... You know, the younger generation has higher expectations mm-hmm, mm-hmm. than we do. Yeah. And they're also full of ideals and, you know, good ideals. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so in that sense, it's, it's, you know, they do have something to say. And it is, the, this is their country to inherit. Right. A good chunk of Lebanon is looking at this moment the same way. Whether or not it actually materializes into a better country, I think it's too soon. But it is a special moment to document and documenting in all its facets. And I, uh, the photos that we look back to years from now, I think are gonna be the moments that we really celebrate what happened here. Thank you for your time. And I'm glad to know that AUB has a photography department. I have no idea. <laughs> I have no clue. I went here. I've never actually been this far deep into Nicely. Is this a new department? Uh, Media Studies, yeah. Well, it's a new program. Okay. Yeah, we're a program right. within the Anthropology and Sociology Department. It's within I see. Okay. Yeah, that's why. But there is a degree in photography. Uh, no, there's a degree in Media Studies. Media Studies. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's good to we're know. We're not I... there yet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I think we're getting there. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.